Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 2 and 3, uh, this morning. As Bob said, my name is Josh Hollowell, and I am the church planting apprentice here at New Life. We are seeking to uh, plant, to, to start a new congregation out of New Life in downtown Muncie. Uh, specifically, we're seeking to start a missional and a multicultural church in downtown Muncie. Um, and so we are really excited about how the Lord is moving things forward, uh, hoping to have uh, the, the beginnings of our core group identified uh, sometime this summer and begin moving forward uh, in setting not just the vision, but now the strategy of how to accomplish that vision uh, in downtown Muncie. And uh, my family and I, we're looking to relocate from our home on the north side of Muncie into the downtown community and really excited about how the Lord is providing opportunities for us to do that. And uh, hopefully soon we'll have some more updates on our move downtown. So, uh, but really thankful to be here this morning. Uh, love New Life and so thankful to be here to bring the word this morning. Um, well, I was reading an article recently in, online on a website called Life Hacker. Uh, have you ever heard of a, a life hack? It's this, uh, it's sort of like a little trick that you do to increase your productivity or efficiency. It's called a life hack. And so they're super popular now, and there's all these websites like Lifehacker uh, that develop these little tips, and uh, some are like memory techniques or other things to improve your uh, productivity or your efficiency, uh, or in some way just generally improve your life. Well, the article I was reading was on how to life hack the seven deadly sins. Which was really interesting. Uh, the article opened up and said, uh, regardless of your religious belief, these are generally uh, character traits that most people agree are bad. Uh, things to get rid of. And so it had some little tricks to try and get rid of the seven deadly sins. Uh, for lust, the trick was called recasting. Uh, and it said, when you feel a desire, remind yourself how you've beaten that desire in the past and then you can overcome it. Uh, for gluttony, it said distraction. Whenever you have a desire uh, to overindulge, distract yourself when a desire comes along. And for vanity, the, the hack was deep breathing. So whenever you're feeling particularly vain, you should exercise some deep breathing, and that will help. Well, the article admitted that these probably aren't going to destroy these things in your life. But they said it may help improve it a little bit, and then you'll have the fortitude to really take them out. And I think we know intuitively that deep breathing is not going to take care of vanity in our lives. Uh, but for me, it prompted a deeper question. What do we do with sinful desires? Not just sinful actions, that's typically how we think about sin, actions that I commit against God's word. But what do we do with sinful desires? Desires that rise up within me. What do I do with those? How do I deal with sinful desires? desires. It's one of the questions we're going to look at this morning, and to do so, we're going to look at the book of Colossians and to see how Paul addresses uh, this in this letter that he writes. Uh, to give you a little context, Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church he most likely never visited personally. Uh, most likely, the church in Colossae was planted by a guy named Epaphras, uh, who 
came to Ephesus, which is a city nearby where Paul had a lot of ministry, heard the gospel under Paul, and then takes the gospel back to Colossae and starts a church there. Very similar to what, well, that's not what we wanted to have happen. (laughs) I was a little nervous that that was going to happen, but we went with it anyway. So, is it going to work? Otherwise, we could just watch Netflix, right? Well, we'll see. Uh, Hopefully, it's going to work. If not, we'll... We'll figure it out. Um, all right, so um, the context in Colossians. So uh, Epaphras starts this church here, and, and it's very similar to, to really what we're hoping uh, to have happen uh, with the church plant, that Epaphras heard the gospel under this ministry and was sent out and started a church. Uh, through evangelism and discipleship, a church was born there. And now some false teaching has crept in to the church. And so Epaphras is having to deal with this false teaching, and to do so, he contacts Paul, his mentor, and sends him this letter, and then Paul attempts to uh, write a letter back to Epaphras uh, to communicate what to do with some of these false teachings. So, that is uh, the context that's going on. We don't know all of what's happening with the false teachers. Uh, we don't know uh, everything that's, that's going on there. It's not 100% clear from the, the text. But what we do know, we do know a few things about them. And, and one of the things that they talked a lot about is this idea of fullness. Spiritual fullness. That there was a way to experience something deeper and greater that the Colossians weren't experiencing. They weren't necessarily saying that Jesus was bad. They were saying that you needed to add something to experience a full spiritual life. You needed something a little more, a little extra, to get to full spiritual life. So this is what the the false teachers were saying. And Paul pens this letter to begin uh, to, to, to speak against this. But imagine the the church in Colossae. Why why would they be tempted to move away from Jesus? And We don't know exactly, but I can imagine that some of it has to do with what it feels like to experience the gospel, to see growth in your life as the church in Colossae has experienced, but then to still deal with sinful desires. What do I do with the desire that I feel that rises up within me? What do I do with the lust that rises up within me? Or the rage or the vanity that rises up within me? Is this Jesus thing enough? And they're tempted to move away from Jesus to add something to Him in order to crush these desires. Well, in order to move forward here, we're going to look at Colossians 2, uh, 20 to 23, we're going we're gonna to see how Paul begins to address this, and then uh, we'll see his full answer in Colossians 3 a little bit later on. So if you want to turn, Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, Paul begins to attack at what the false teachers are teaching, and he does so by highlighting a little bit about what they were teaching. We get a little picture of what they were teaching here. And apparently, some of their teaching focused intensely upon discipline. We see this in the passage. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These regulations. And Paul says that these have uh, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. Apparently, they had a focus on disciplining your body against very physical outside things, right? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Things like food. That if you could deny yourself these things and be severe to your body, you could experience this fullness. You could get past this uh, sinful desire. Paul says that this has an appearance of wisdom. It's a really important phrase in our passage, an appearance of wisdom. It means that it looks like it should be right, but it misdiagnoses the problem. If the problem with sinful desires was just outside of you, then being severe to your body and preventing those things would make a lot of sense, right? Denying yourself those outside things would make a lot of sense. But the problem is that sinful desires are deeper than the things outside us. And so that's why it only has an appearance of wisdom. It appears wise to be severe to your body if you have all these desires, but the problem isn't that the desires are coming from outside, they're coming from within. And so severity to the body, denying yourself these things and placing these strict regulations will do nothing. Paul says it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we've got to figure out what's at the root of sin. What's at the root of sinful desires? You see, sin is not simply the things that you do, but there's something at its root. And I think to get to the root of it, we can get a clue from the phrase that Paul uses here, the indulgence of the flesh. Now the word here, flesh, does not mean your physical body, your physical flesh. The word in the original language means much more along the lines of your sinful nature. Everything about you that's in rebellion against God and His ways. That's what the flesh is. It's not just the physical about you, but it's, it's the whole of you that's in rebellion against God. So that's what the flesh is. But what about the indulgence of the flesh? Well, well, what's indulgence? This word in the original language has the idea of being full and then filling more. Right? That's what indulgence is. We know that. Think about indulgence of food. It's being full and then continuing to eat. Why do we do that? Well, at its root, it's about pleasure and desire. At its root, it's about pleasure and desire. 
That's why we continue to indulge. Because we find joy and pleasure in the thing that we're indulging in. So sin at its root is about fundamentally about pleasure and desire. Well, how do you get rid of a desire? How do you get rid of something that rises up within you? And why even deal with it? Why is it so important to deal with pleasures and desires? Well, it's really important because it reveals ultimately what we love. Henry Skugel in his book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man, says the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He that loves mean and sordid things does thereby become base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection does advance and improve the spirit unto conformity with the perfections which it loves. That quote's a lot easier to read when you can see it, but (laughs) that's okay. Uh, The importance of getting rid of a desire is because it reveals who we are. It reveals what we love, which reveals who we really are. That's what Skugel's saying in this quote. And so if you love mean and sordid things, right? If you love base and vile things, you thereby become base and vile. But if you love noble things, your whole life is shaped by that love of something that's good. Here we have a huge clue moving forward to how to get rid of sinful desires. And it's not so much that Desire and pleasure is in and of itself evil. It's what is your desire and your pleasure in? Right? That's what he's saying. If your desire and your pleasure is in something good, your whole life will be transformed by that desire and pleasure. If your desire and your pleasure is in something evil, your whole life will be transformed by that desire and pleasure and thereby become evil. So now, how do we move forward? What do we do? You can just shut that off. I'll just keep going. (laughs) So that we don't keep (laughs) doing that. It worked earlier, I promise. But we'll we'll just keep keep moving forward. Um, so, So what is it that we're to do now? Because left to ourselves, we're not gonna be able to change our desires. How now do we move forward? What's the path to moving forward? Well, in a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, Thomas Chalmers, uh, a Puritan, uh, says this during this sermon. This sermon has massively transformed my life, and you can find it free online uh, if you just search The Expulsive Power of a New Affection and can read it in its entirety. Chalmers says this, The best way to disengage an impure desire is to engage a pure one. The best way to expel the love of what is evil is to embrace the love of what is good instead. To be specific, we must replace the object of our sinful affection with an infinitely more worthy one, God Himself. In this way, we do not move from a full heart into a vacuum but from a full heart to a heart bursting with fullness. 
and the expulsive power of our new affection weakens and even destroys the power of sin in our hearts. What Chalmers is saying here is that in order to move away from a sinful desire, we need a greater desire. He's keying in on the, on the thing that uh, Skugel was keying in on as well. It, that it's not so much about the pleasure and the desire, it's about what is your pleasure and your desire in? Is it in something good? Or is it in something evil? And the key is that there's a connection between the indulgence of the flesh and finding our joy in God. You see, the indulging in the flesh is fundamentally about pleasure and desire. And worshiping God is fundamentally about pleasure and desire. Worshiping God, pursuing God, is a fundamentally about pleasure and desire. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this in the, in the very first question of the catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, the Westminster Divines were no dummies, right? But, but this is one chief end. But there's an and in the answer. There are two things that they say. It's because these two things are linked together. Glorify God and enjoy Him. We might even change that and to a by. Worship God. That's to glorify Him, right? To worship Him. Glorify God by enjoying Him. By finding our pleasure and our desire in Him. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He keys in on this same theme. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This is exactly what our Old Testament reading this morning talked about. That the people of Israel were forsaking God, the fountain of living waters, and making for themselves something that would never satisfy. And the answer is to find our satisfaction in the fountain of living waters. So, We've asked the question, how do we deal with our sinful desires? And now I want to ask the question, how do we actually deal with them? Because we haven't really answered that yet. We've said that the false teachers didn't have an answer for it. It's not in regulations and in beating your body into submission and denying yourself these things. But we haven't actually gave a positive answer of how we actually deal with these sinful desires. So to do that, we're going to continue to read on in Colossians, starting in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We see here in this passage the key moving forward of how to actually deal with sinful desires. It's with a better desire. A better pleasure. It's exactly what Chalmers was speaking about, that we need a greater pleasure. It's exactly what Lewis was keying in on as well, that we're we're far too easily pleased. We need something greater. And Paul leaves us here not to wonder what that greater pleasure is, what that better pleasure is. He tells us that it's Jesus. Jesus is our better pleasure. And in light of that, because Jesus is our better pleasure, He now calls us to set our minds on Christ. To set our minds on Christ. And how are we going to do that? Well, the language of this passage, if we can focus in, starting in verse 20, Paul starts by saying, If with Christ you died... And then if you flip ahead to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, if with Christ you've died, and if then you've been raised with Christ, the way forward is the Gospel. The Gospel is how we set our minds on Christ. This Gospel, Paul's already reminded the Colossians about in chapter 1. If you just flip over one page in your Bible... Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, he's reminded them already of the gospel. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This good news of who Jesus is and what He has done, Paul's already been reminding them about. That God sent His Son Jesus into the world. That Jesus took on our humanity and then took our sin upon Himself so that any and all who trust in Him and Him alone can have the forgiveness of their sins, as we've already heard about this morning in our assurance of pardon. That Jesus took our punishments and paid it completely and now gives His perfect righteousness to any and all who are trusting in Him. Well, how does the Gospel actually help us to set our minds on Christ? How does the Gospel actually help us to find Jesus as our better pleasure? Chalmers speaks of this in that sermon that I referred to, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says, Beside the world, it, it being the Gospel, places before the eye of the mind Him who made the world. And with this peculiarity, which is all its own, 
that in the gospel do we so behold God as that we may love God. It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners and where our desire after Him is not chilled into apathy by that barrier of human guilt which intercepts every approach that is not made to Him through the appointed mediator. It's only in the Gospel where we see God not in wrath against our sin, but in love towards us sinners. It's only in the Gospel where the reality of our sin is taken care of, and so there is no shame, there is no guilt, and we can approach God and find in Him joy and pleasure. Because there's no barrier between us and Him. It's only here in the Gospel where that's true. Friends, if you're here this morning and you have not experienced the reality of the Gospel, you're not trusting in Jesus and Him alone, you have no hope to beat your sinful desires. There's nothing in you that will beat them back. They will continue to rise up. And not only that, but you're accountable before a holy God, not just for your sinful actions, but for those very sinful desires that you cannot in and of yourself beat. You're accountable for those things. But God has done something amazing in sending His Son to crush your sinful actions and your sinful desires. And if you look to Him and trust in Him and Him alone, you can be freed, forgiven, and have no shame to stand before a holy God and adore Him. No shame to stand before Him. The language of this passage is incredible. If you have died and if you have been raised. The Colossians didn't die on the cross. They didn't rise from the dead. But they are so united to Jesus by faith that what's true of Jesus is true of them. It's as if they've already paid the penalty for sin. It's done. It cannot be charged to them. It's as if they rose from the dead already. That's what's true of them. Their life is so wrapped up with Jesus that Paul here says, when Jesus appears again in glory, that's when your life will really show up. Because your life is so wrapped up in who Jesus is. This is what's true of us in the Gospel. This is what's true of us if we're trusting in Jesus. So in dealing with sinful desires... With all of this in mind, why does Paul immediately go to the mind? He says, in light of these things, right, set your minds on the things of Christ. Why does Paul do this? Well, it's because the thoughts of our mind reveal the love of our heart, which as we've already discovered, reveals who we truly are. The thoughts of our mind reveal who we really are because it reveals what we love what we desire. And so if we're to transform what we desire and find pleasure in, we've got to discipline our minds to set them, to set our thoughts on the things of Christ. 
so that we can raise our desires for Christ. So how do we do that? That's the third question we want to seek to answer this morning. How do we set our minds on Christ? Well, to do this, we must focus exclusively on Jesus. We must focus our attention on Christ if we're to set our minds on Him. We've got to know things about Him if we're to think about Him and to find pleasure in Him. And Paul has already laid out for us in this book, for the Colossians, he's already spoken often of Christ and His fullness over everything else. Over the false teachers who are boasting of their spiritual insights, he's focusing on Christ. He says this in Colossians 1, 15-20 of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If we're to set our minds on Christ, we need the Jesus of creation and redemption who rules and reigns over all things. We need the Jesus of glory who embraced humiliation for our salvation. And we need to set our minds on Jesus. Friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. There is no better thing that you need, no better person that you need, than Jesus. He's sufficient. For the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. He's sufficient for your joy and your delight. And so, in light of this, we must, as John Calvin says, drink deeply from this fountain of Jesus. Calvin says this, we see that our whole salvation And all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. That's exactly what the false teachers are trying to do. Not the whole salvation from somewhere else. Just a portion of it. Your holiness. You need to seek outside of Jesus. You need these other things. But Calvin's calling us to what Paul is calling here. That we should seek our salvation all of its parts from nowhere but Jesus and Jesus alone. This is one of the things that we are focusing on intensely for the church plan. It's so easy to get distracted in a young church to something else. We need this thing or we need that thing. We need Jesus and Him alone. That's what we need. Calvin goes on to say this, If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity in His conception, if gentleness, it appears in His birth. For by His birth He was made like us in all respects, that He might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. If acquittal, in His condemnation. 
if remission of the curse in His cross, if satisfaction in His sacrifice, if purification in His blood, if mortification of the flesh in His tomb, if newness of life in His resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance in the heavenly kingdom in His entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in His kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to Him to judge, in short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Everything we seek can be found in the fountain of Christ. We must seek to fill ourselves from this fountain and no other. Well, I want to leave you this morning with six practical things to help us set our minds on the things of Christ. The first is to believe the gospel. What's really important at the outset of a a list of practical things is to know this is not a list of regulations like the false teachers had. So they have their list of regulation. Here's our list of regulations. Do these six things and you'll set your minds on Christ. That's not it at all. The first one is to believe you're not saved by keeping regulations. The only way that you'll find joy in Jesus over all of your sinful desires is to experience the extravagant love of Jesus for you. To know that you're saved not by keeping regulations. We've got to believe the Gospel. Second, we must live in community together and encourage one another. Not just Christians living together in community with one another, loving one another and sharing life together, but also doing that in a distinctly Christian way. If this is the only time we gather together as a people throughout the week to talk about Jesus, we will not love Jesus more than our sinful desires. We've got to encourage one another with the things of Christ and speak often of His love for us. Three, we've got to devour God's Word. This is where the Gospel is revealed to us. We've got to discipline ourselves to devour God's Word. And one little simple suggestion, work to eliminate distractions when you read God's Word so that your mind can really sink in to the Word so that you can delight in Jesus. Four, study Jesus. This is similar to the last one, read the Bible, but a little bit different. When I, when I say study Jesus, this is what I want you to do. Think about your favorite thing. How do you study that thing? Study Jesus like that. Study Jesus like your favorite sports team. Your wife or your husband. Your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Your crush. Your favorite TV show. Delight in Jesus like you delight in your favorite things. And your life will be radically transformed. If you know more about your favorite sports athlete and his statistics when he was playing high school than you do about Jesus, you will not delight in Jesus over your sinful desires. If you know more about your favorite political candidate than you do about Jesus, you will not delight in Jesus over your sinful desires. We've got to study Jesus and who He is for to, to delight in Him. To do that, five, we must soak in deep theology. 
We live in this incredible age right now. And in the English language, there are abundant resources that are incredibly helpful and wonderful. We've got to go deep in them. We've got to go deep in them. Now, not going deep for the sake of knowledge that puffs up, right? But let's not use that as a fear to to avoid deep theology. Well, I don't want to be puffed up. Well, that's good. That doesn't mean avoid deep theology. It means go in it with an attitude of humility and prayer to study the deep things of God. There are abundant resources. We've got this book table out here. Buy some books. Dig deep into who Jesus is so that you have thoughts to think about when you're setting your minds on the things of Christ. You've got something to actually delight in and to imagine and to think about. Finally, six, join Jesus in his mission. We really are evangelists for the things we love most. If I find something new that I love or, or find something that I don't love, I tell everyone about it, right? Right now, I don't love airplay because it didn't work. So I'm going to tell everyone. I'm a little frustrated. But, <laughs> but I normally tell everyone the opposite. I'm not frustrated with this. I love this stuff, right? And I'm an evangelist for those things because I love them. How often you speak of Jesus with those who don't know Him reveals how you love Him. And the reverse is true. If you want to grow in your love for Jesus, speak often of Him and you will grow in your delight in Him. Join Him in His mission to seek and save the lost. Well, again, we do all these things not because it merits our salvation, but because we love Jesus because of what he's done for us. Jesus, our better pleasure. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that your word cannot be held back regardless of whatever uh, technological snafus or whatever happens. Your word goes forth and it accomplishes your purposes. And so Lord, would you do that this morning in our hearts that you would accomplish your purposes in the Word, through the preaching of the Word this morning, that you would transform us by your Spirit, that we would love you and desire you above all things, so that you could get all the glory, Lord, because we love you. So make us love you more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.